Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today is all about the blues. And as a special treat, we have our special guest, Wolf, in-house with us. A pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Okay, that was Arthur Lee Williams playing the harmonica in his front stoop in uh, St. Louis when I got the uh, wonderful opportunity to interview him. Um, what an amazing guy. I, you know, it's kind of funny. When I started doing interviews, I always thought the quintessential blues interview would be a guy playing in his front stoop, and there it happened. <laughs> hey, this is, uh, this is Dan, and I'm so glad to have um, Mike with me again. Mike? Hello. And our newbie, your second podcast, Michelle, welcome to the team. Hi, happy to be here. And what a uh, personal thrill it is to have our special guest, uh, my dear friend and neighbor, Wolf Marshall. Thanks for coming. Hello, y'all. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. One of the thoughts of uh, today is all about the blues, and we're so happy to get Wolf's perspective on that. We get to share some of our favorite interviews from the NAM Oral History Program. And Mike, I wonder if you could run down some of the folks we're going to be hearing from today. Yeah, we definitely have quite the stacked podcast today. Um, we're going to be hearing from some of the greats in blues, such as Quincy Jones, B.B. King, John Mayall, John D. Holman. We already heard from Arthur Lee Williams, and we will be hearing from him again. Uh, let's see, Robert Cray, Alan Toussaint, and that looks like it. Awesome. A lot of great people, a lot of great fun. I'm glad you guys could join us. I thought maybe a good place to start was to, a, a short discussion on really what the blues are all about. I mean, to me, it's all about expression musically. Wolf, how do you explain it? I consider it, like jazz, uh, to be an improvisatory art form but it's the intersection of discipline and spirituality, meaning that what you've got inside of you, your spirit comes out through the discipline of the music. Like usually in the blues, it's a 12 bar form or something comparable in order to get the sound of the music technically. But then it's how each artist imbues his spirit into that kind of a little bit what I call rigid form. Hmm. So yeah. to me, it, it transcends the form at that point. 
Absolutely. Well said. And the folks we're going to be hearing from today all sort of define that that concept, in my opinion. So, Michelle, tell us a little bit about where we're going to start. Sure. Uh, We have the opportunity to start with just some of these amazing inspirational people's first instruments and how they actually got into their careers and their love for music. So first up, let's hear from Quincy Jones talking about how he found the piano and then B.B. King talking about his guitar and first amp. While in Bremerton, we were working at an armory there that was like our recreation center next to army camp. This was during the war, World War II. And we had this armory where it was our recreation center, but we had everything covered because we were baby gangsters, man. We had all the stores. We worked at them. Nobody could get away with nothing. We, we, we controlled all of it, 11 years old. And... We broke in the army. We heard some uh, uh, meringue, lemon meringue pie was coming in with three different kinds of ice cream. So we were all on top of that. 11.30, when when they hit it, we were in there at midnight, half hour later, eating up all of the pie and ice cream. Then we had a pie fight after we ate it up. Then we, we individually went around to the offices and broke in. And I broke in Mrs. Ayer's uh, office, which was a superintendent, and it had a spinet piano in it. And I almost closed the door, and something said, idiot, go back in that room. I went back in the room and touched that piano, and every cell in my body said, that's what you do the rest of your life. And uh, I probably would be in prison or dead if I hadn't done that. And so I turned from gangster to musician, and and, uh, I was in the- 11. Yeah, 11 years old. You know, one of the things that we're fascinated about is um, the instrument and the evolution of the instrument. You've been, played a big role in that too, as an Dorsey and, and the different things that you've come up with over the years. Um, I wonder if I could just ask you a little bit about that. What do you remember the first amplifier that? that oh you, yeah, uh, very well. Tell me about it. The first amplifier I had, I bought it in Memphis at a uh, at a music store called OK Hawk. I was 1949, yeah, for sure I remember. I remember it very well. Um, uh, I guess the speaker might have been 10 inches, maybe eight or 10 inches. <laughs> and it had only one speaker and it was about so big. At that time I wasn't as big as I am now, so I used to sit on it. It was well built, but um, it was a Gibson, Gibson uh, amp and I had a little black Gibson guitar, the first one that was named Lucille. And I didn't have, a, the guitar was amplified by a, a, a pickup. It wasn't made as an electric guitar, but they had this pickup called a Diarm. I believe it was Diarm was the name of the company that made it. And you put that on, it had one knob on it, and that one knob was just to turn the volume up and lower it. And that was my first one. And I remember it like it was yesterday, yes. Did you play differently after you got the amp, do you think? Yeah, I'm glad you put a think on that, yes. <laughs> I thought that made me much better. <laughs> Boy, I remember well sitting toe-to-toe with B.B. King there. That was at Humphreys down in San Diego. What an amazing experience that was for me personally. And I'm just so honored and delighted that we now have an interview 
uh, of him in the NAM Oral History Program. Uh, fantastic guy, as you can tell. And he uh, illuminated a really interesting fact that uh, because NAM also represents the music retail, I got to learn a little bit more about this store called OK Hauk, which was a, a prim and proper piano store up front, but the uh, the owner's son was into rock and roll and had a little back door where he would have musicians come back and pick up their instruments. And I know, uh, as we heard from B.B. King, that's uh, where he got his amplifier. I know Ike Turner got one of his first Fenders there. And uh, our dear friend Scotty Moore, who later went with Elvis, um, got his first guitar there. So a uh, kind of a hubbub there ha- happening there in Memphis. So um, I'd love to hear, Wolf, your, your thoughts about listening to B.B. there. Well, uh, as I listened to him, I realized that that guitar he was talking about was considered very low-tech at the time, including the Diarmid pickup, which clamped on with a couple <laughs> of thumb screws on the strings and had one single knob. And today that would be almost unheard of in mm. the blues to play with such minimal gear and as well as a tiny amp that would be like a shoebox size by comparison. And yet he got his sound out of it. His spiritual sound came out through that very minimal equipment. Like I said, be considered low tech, but it's all about making the string sing, which is his actual signature. He makes it sound like a human voice. So the guitar's nature is to die very quickly. It's very short time span. It has a very short decay Mm. and it does not sustain. So the electric guitar the amplifier helped him to create his sound. Absolutely. So where are we going to go next? We heard from Quincy Jones and B.B. King. We're going to get a little bit of information about John Mayle um, and how he modifies his guitars, as well as John D. Holman, and his very creative way of expressing his music. Well, I was trained in art, so it's just a, just a natural flow through that I like to design. You know, I've designed most of the album covers, uh, my album, you know, so, and uh, guitars and so forth. Is there a particular thing you're going for? Is it just aesthetic, or is there a particular sound that you're looking to no, get out of it? No, no, no. Instruments that have sound comes from what people want to put into it. I made me a guitar, or bought one, out of a cigar box. I went to store the man, you know, had a loose cigar. I told him when he, you know, fished his cigar out, save me the bar. So he did. Over one side of it, one side stay swinging. I'm sure you all see that. I glued it back together, cut me a hole in the center, run me a board across that for neck, trimmed it out, made that myself. Wish I had an album. I don't know what even a splinter of it at. What did you use for strings? Pull the uh, string wire out of a string door. You know, they got the old vinyl now, but the string, I just take a big particular, I pull them out of a string door, set them across there. I got a sound from it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I had to get it the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say. Yeah, sure did. <laughs> what great stories. Yeah. If you're motivated, you're going to make a guitar out of a 
a cigar box and a screen door. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. That was John D. Holman. And before that was uh, John Mayall, and I just wanted to do a little shout out to the gentleman who um, uh, was conducting that interview, our late dear friend, Eric Glassnap. So um, back to John D. I mean, what an amazing guy and uh, being really one of the very last of the Piedmouth um, blues players in the United States out there in South Carolina. That finger picking uh, style with the, with the thumb doing the bass notes uh, has been such an influence on so many other people. And what a delight it was to give him some recognition for that. And I, I think one of the things that makes me uh, really appreciate the uh, the oral history program at NAM is it does exactly that. You know, by including some legends and some people who have been our uh, founders of the industry, we're able to pay back a little bit by acknowledging the, and recognizing their contributions. What any any thoughts you had during those segments, Sir Wolf? Actually, a couple. Um, if you look at the cover of Diary of a Band, John Mayall's live album with Mick Taylor on it, it's a two-volume set, you'll see the guitar he's talking about. He's holding it. It's a very unusual instrument. It's got a shape like no other guitar. Hmm. looks almost like a rounded-off tr- uh, rectangle. <laughs> and it's uh, very strange looking. There's no other shape like that. He obviously created that. And it's got designs all over it and four little pickups squashed together. So you didn't really hear him play guitar in the early days, uh, so you weren't even aware that he had a guitar. It's like the original album was live at Kluke's Clique, and he had a different guy. He played most of the keyboards. Okay. With Eric Clapton, he didn't play any guitar. Right. So you didn't hear it until the Peter Green album, which is the third album down the line, and then you finally saw the guitar, this fifth or sixth album. Huh. And uh, you could see it's covered with his designs and his, his artistic uh, nature, the way he painted it. And also as a side, just a passing aside, uh, Albert King also fashioned a guitar early on in his life out of a cigar box and some <laughs> humble materials. That's awesome. Yeah. Great stories. And I feel like nowadays cigar boxes are kind of on the rise again. They have like the kits where you can make your own cigar box. Like That's a good for point. For fun and stuff. It's like it started out as like a necessity for these guys that couldn't get a real guitar and now people are doing it by choice it's just kind of a funny (laughs) funny way how that came back around i think we all did it i remember when i was 13 in in wood shop and uh making a guitar out of a plastic body and then putting it together in wood shop with little rivets and stuff look like a fender jaguar at the time i still have the body i have no idea what happened to the neck (laughs) fantastic stuff any other thoughts mike or michelle about uh these guys we're listening to what comes to your mind michelle um so I mean, I'm going to go, like, way back, though. I was thinking, the, nobody made a comment about Quincy Jones and how he, like, <laughs> broke into this office, and that started the, like, most amazing career. Like, he's right up there with, I believe he's in the top ten of Grammy winners. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And it all started with him, after a pie fight, touching <laughs> a piano that he just happened to, quote-unquote, find. So I just think that was such an amazing story, how uh, he got started. I love I love this line about you know I I could have been a you know a gangster. It reminded me of Red Holloway, who I interviewed. Uh, he, he looked right at me and said, "You know, if it wasn't for music, I might be robbing your house right now." <laughs> <laughs> and Eddie Van Halen had a little variation on that. Said, "If it wasn't for the guitar, I'd probably be pumping gas in the valley." <laughs> it saved us all. <laughs> and, and one little thing uh, also reminds me of a story. Uh, you know, when he said he f- touched the piano, and he had immediately the connection. Mm-hmm. Well, when Pat Martina was like a toddler, he touched his dad's guitar and actually cut his fingers on the strings, and he felt a 
connection at that time as a toddler mm. with that instrument. When he cut his fingers, his dad put that guitar away permanently under the, under the bed, and wow. he wasn't allowed to touch it, but he had this immediate attraction to it. Something happens when you first touch an instrument that's destiny. Mm, no doubt about it. Yeah, I totally agree, Wolf. That's neat. So, Michelle, you've done such a great job putting all this together. Uh, we just finished our segment on first instruments. Uh, what is the next segment of the podcast? Inspirations. I mean, all of these people are so inspirational just themselves. So it's really interesting to hear who inspires them. So we're going to hear from three big names and the inspirations behind them. First up, John Mayall, then Robert Cray, followed by B.B. King. And this segment is just great because it, it, it shows the legends talking about the legends in their eyes, mm. which is really cool. Absolutely. So let's hear from the guys. And what kind of music were you playing at that time? Blues. Any particular artists that you were particularly attached no, to? No, I'd, I'd listen. You know, I was 30 years old. I'd had a lifetime of listening to uh, blues and jazz. And what were some of your main influences? Oh, there was too many. I never answer that question because it's misleading. People think, oh, he, he used to like blah, 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 but there's so many of them, you know. They all become a collective whole. Well, Robert, thanks for taking some time. I really appreciate well, it. Thank you. You know, one of the things that is very clear about your career in music is your passion for music. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how that developed in your life. Did you have music in your house when you were a kid? We had lots of music in our house when I was growing up. We had, my, my parents, they didn't play per se, but, but they played a lot of records, you know. And we had music from Ray Charles to Sarah Vaughan to B.B. King to Jackie Wilson to Bobby Blue Bland to Sam Cooke. And on Sundays, my dad would listen to gospel music. And so that included groups like the Dixie Hummingbirds, the Swan Silvertones, Five Blind Boys from Mississippi and Alabama and all that kind of stuff. So music was always around. And uh, my dad was in the Army. And, uh, and uh, so in the early 60s, we got stationed uh, in Munich, Germany. And uh, in the early 60s, uh, you know, being on the military base there, uh, what we did for entertainment was to listen to records. And so it was through those two and a half years of being stationed there where we would listen to Armed Forces Radio Network or the records that we had, you know. And we bought a lot of records at the PX, you know. And, uh, and I, I remember buying my first record that I wanted to get personally, which was uh, a song called A Little Bit of Soap by the Jarmels, you know. And, and it was great. I mean, you know, my parents bought a nice big Grundig, you know, stereo, you know, com, you know, big, big system, you know, with the with the record player. It had the spindle for the 45s and the, the you know, the AM, FM, or not FM, but just you know, shortwave radio and the, and the tape deck and all that stuff. So, I mean, we listen to music all the time. It was great. What have been some of the inspirational things for you coming up playing music? Have there been an inter, uh, individual person as a mentor? or? There have been so many, sir. I don't think we have enough time <laughs> to talk about them. But there are five that stays with me all the time. I got them on my MP3. I was just listening to one a few minutes ago before you came in. That was a guy out of Mississippi, and it's been said that more blues singers came out of Mississippi Delta than any place else. Uh, I don't think this guy was actually from the Delta, but his name was Lonnie Johnson. Uh, not Robert Johnson, Lonnie Johnson. I think Robert was good, but Lonnie was my favorite. 
And then there's a guy out of Texas called, um, his name was Lemon Jefferson, born blind I hear, and everybody called him Blind Lemon. That's the second one. And both of them played um, acoustic guitars. And where I lived, we never had electricity until I was about almost 17 years old before we ever had electricity in the house. We always had these kerosene lamps and when I was a small boy they'd talk about all the ghost stories and everything and as soon as they make me go to my room, they cut it out. <laughs> it kept me scared all the time. Now here I'm 80 years old and just about I'll be 80 next month so um, I never got over that. But anyway, those two guys were um, great at playing the acoustic guitar. But then I liked jazz. That was a guy called Charlie Christen. Uh, I talk about him a lot because the great jazz musician, Benny Goodman, was one of the first to integrate a band. And he integrated it with Charlie Christen. And a Frenchman, from France, um, they called him a French gypsy. His name was Django Reinhardt. And the fifth one is a guy that was from Texas, played electric guitar, um, single string electric blues, they said. The name was T-Bone Walker. So those are the five that I uh, have loved all of my life. Could never play like any of them. Uh, there was times when I'd get mad at the guitar and then all of a sudden I'd think, it's not the guitar, but it's you. <laughs> Wolf, what are some of your thoughts about those guys that B.B. Uh, was talking about? Amazing well, list of musicians, uh, yeah, for and, sure. And really, it's like a template for any guitarist wanting to know about B.B.'s footprints, mm. where he came from. Those five are essential. Alani Johnson was the first uh, guitarist to incorporate the urban sound. Uh, whereas Blind Lemon stayed within the country sound. So a lot of uh, Lonnie Johnson stuff went into the jazz vein. He did duets with Eddie Lang, hmm. who was Bing Crosby's guitarist, and it was in the jazz world. First duos of jazz guitar, and he was a blues guitarist. Hmm. So he was crossing over back at that point. And Blind Lemon, like I said, is a very renowned country blues artist. Uh, then Charlie Christian, of course, is, everyone knows his reputation as being really the first electric guitar of prominent importance. And interestingly, he and T-Bone Walker were buddies. They used to play on a street corner, and Charlie would play the bass, T-Bone would play the guitar, and then they'd swap. <laughs> they both took lessons from the same guitar player uh, at one point. And so they come off of that tradition together. Uh, like I said, he was the innovator electric guitar in jazz, and of course, T-Bone in blues. A lot of B.B.'s style comes off the way T-Bone plays, uh, the way he's playing the single note thing more so than the chordal thing of country. And then you've got finally Django, who is always considered the virtuoso. And so that he's a jazz swing artist from Europe. And so he started the gypsy jazz phenomenon that still goes on today in festivals all over Europe and the world. So Now, a lot of people might not know his, his finger styling was very unique. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about Django's style. Well, he had a horrible accident at one point in his life, and his fingers of his left hand were fused together due to a fire hmm. that took place in a gypsy camp inside of his wagon, and it fused the skin of his fingers together. So he only had the use of two fingers. You can see it in pictures where they're 
frozen in a sort of position. And so he played largely with two fingers and yet played very virtuosic music all over the fingerboard. He wasn't stuck playing across the neck. He would move uh, all the way up and down the strings using two fingers like a little spider. So it's, it's really amazing. He transcended uh, his uh, incapacity. And, you know, there's many artists who have done that, but to me, he's the most profound in the guitar. Anytime I have a student complaining, I can't play this, I say, think of Django Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> That'll shut it up. <laughs> That's really, really cool. And another comment towards the end there I thought was neat is that uh, BB said he could not play it like any of them. Yeah. And of course, that's a good thing for all of us, right? <laughs> he developed his own style. Exactly. Tell me what your views on BB's style is. It's interesting because BB is a real guitar fan. If I could tell you just a personal story, last time I played with BB King, uh, we did a concert together at Royce Hall, UCLA, at uh, about. 10 years ago. And anyway, it was for Kenny Burrell's 80th birthday. So after the concert, he said, don't be surprised if one day I'm going to take a lesson with you. Of course, he never did because he passed shortly after that. Mm. But the idea is he was a guitar fan. He wanted to learn what everybody else was doing and how he could maybe improve his game. And as far as the Charlie Christian thing, where he sort of uh, had this disparaging remark about his own playing, uh, if you listen to the track, Ain't That Just Like a Woman, he's actually working some of those Charlie Christian mm. licks into his solo, <laughs> which is an instrumental. No doubt. Yeah, that is really cool. Very, very neat. And, uh, you know, just uh, as a little shout out, there's one of the things that I was sort of picking up on listening to all three of these guys, in particular Robert Cray, is accessibility. You know, they whatever song he heard is what influenced him. And if he saved up his money, he could go down to the record shop and buy that one record. And that was a major influence on him. I always wonder, well, if it was a week earlier, it would have been a different song, perhaps. Point being is influence is so important. So for any young musician who's out there, I think all of us here would agree, expose yourself, figure it out, get out. I mean, nowadays, it's so much easier to have access to uh, different styles of music. And the five guys that uh, BB talked about are all accessible online to go in, check them out, figure out how they're a little different and maybe uh, get influenced, you know, glean something from them that you can apply in your own style. You know, if you incorporated even one-twentieth of each of those guys, you'd end up with a very original style. Well said, yep. I thought it was interesting what John Mayall said as well, even though it was a short and concise answer. I like that he said that, Mm. that he never answers that question just because he doesn't want to give off wrong ideas because I'm sure plenty of people have inspirations from artists that do not reflect their sound at all and it's just kind of a minor influence or it's something that you listen to and then created your own style so I think even though it was a short clip and he just basically didn't answer the question (laughs) I think it makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. absolutely and I remember you reminded me Mike that um, uh, the early pioneer of rock and roll uh, Lloyd Price once said uh, in, in fact during his NAM interview that for the longest time when people would ask him that question, he would only answer to people that he thought were relatable to his own style, just because it was too left field to say, well, I'm a rock and roller, but I was influenced by a jazz musician. I mean, it's a lot more common now, but just imagine back then, it wasn't really considered something that you bragged about 
because that's not the style of music that you play. But in fact, all of these guys and so many musicians that we know are influenced from classical music and jazz, no matter what they're playing. And I think that's an important aspect to keep in mind for young people playing is that expose yourself to all styles of music, I think is the best way to go. Yeah, even the most original uh, band in history, the Beatles, if you listen to early records, a lot of actual 12-bar blues, Kansas mm. City, uh, the stuff that Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Bad Boy, and even some of the tunes they wrote, like Can't Buy Me Love, are based on the blues. Well said. Very cool. So, Michelle, tell us a little bit about our next segment. So, the next segment is just how everybody kind of creates their own music and their own sound. And we have two different perspectives here. One is pretty instantaneous. You know, inspiration hit them pretty hard. Um, and that was that. And then the other one was just having to work a little bit harder to kind of get to where he wants to go. So you're about to hear Alan Toussaint and Quincy Jones. I wrote my first little duet when I was 12. Wow. Uh, it was a very humble little duet, trombone and trumpet. Uh, I just thought that would be really pretty. And uh, it was pretty simple, I'll tell you that. Uh, and. Uh, well, that happened maybe a couple of years earlier. I know I wrote my first song with lyrics uh, when I was 12. Yes, it wasn't much of a song at all, but I do know that I was 12 when that happened. And what have you found that process to mean to you? Which process? The process of writing music. The process of writing is uh, you're imitating God. Uh, you're creating a world according to you. You can make the outcome any way you want to. Don't care how mean she left in your song, you can bring her back, whether she likes it or not. Uh, even though we don't take all the liberties we can, sometimes we go further than we should. But uh, again, I say it's like playing God, especially arranging, because when you first begin to put the pen to paper, all the things that you're thinking should happen no one knows it but you, and as you begin to write it, it's like writing a letter uh, 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 that various people are supposed to read and do their part in it. Then when you get to the place where the musicians are and you bring down a downbeat and you hear for the first time, and the whole planet hear for the first time what you had in mind that you put on paper, that's a pretty, in a way, it's a, a kind of, cocky feeling, modestly so, because music keeps us humble. But it is something uh, to think that what wasn't a moment ago now is. Uh, and that's a reality. And with the technology, now it's, for, it's forever. Well, as long as we uh, have certain energetic resources. I don't know if I got far from your question. No, no. I was, are you kidding? I'm loving every sentence you say. <laughs> this is fantastic. It's, I think it's, uh, I, I appreciate what you have done as a musician and as a songwriter so much that uh, hearing you express yourself in words is uh, quite meaningful to me. So I, Thank you. Uh, I greatly appreciate that. Inspiration, inspiration, inspiration. And I say that because uh, as songwriters, we would prefer writing always from sheer inspiration. But with 
a world that we're moving in at the pace things are going and how fast jets can get to England and all. Uh, and we're involved in this machine that we can't afford to just wait around for the clouds to open up and give us something, which I'm glad to say it still does. But uh, we need more than that cloud feel like rendering. So you can write, after a while you can write from your re reservoir of stuff you've collected because you know the process of writing. Like if you wanted a song right now about that pillar, I could do that. Uh, and sometime I'll even look at it and want to do that. Or if it's time to write, I'm going to do that. So there are different processes of writing. Uh, a good uh, analogy is Southern Nights is not one of those that I wrote because I knew anything. I just shared a certain part of my life. And I, I spoke in a, mel in a melodic melodic line, but I wasn't trying to actually uh, make a song, song, song out of my repertoire, at least out of my reservoir of know-how. Hmm. Uh, chorus, verse, a bridge, tension, release, and then take them out. Uh, that can be thought and is done a lot. But at Southern Nights was a totally inspirational song that I just reported as it hovered over me and told me, sort of told me what to say. Saying, don't you remember? Say this and say that. And in a, in a very comforting way. Other times, uh, uh, well, I collect scraps all the time, everywhere I am if I'm walking anywhere because there's so much going on. And if I see something happening on the corner, if I get back to the car, if I may have a little piece of paper or something to say what I saw and how I felt about what I saw. Because uh, sometimes you'll make a note of something and you make your note too short and you think you're going to remember this forever and this note won't mean anything in three weeks. So I even write about how I felt about what I saw and, and if it's to be anything. And, and I revisited maybe later that evening when, when I've collected enough feathers and wishbones and try to make a chicken out of it. And sometimes I'll look back at it and say, I don't know what I was thinking, why I thought this was worthy of wasting, wasting the pencil on it. Uh, so that's just inspiration, inspiration, always open and grateful that I'm in the, a profession that you can do that. Yeah, you can paint any pictures you want at, at anything you see or anyone. What comes first for you? Oh, yeah, that's a question that is asked sometimes. And sometimes you can answer it one way and sometimes another. So since I've been through where you can do, I'll try both. <laughs> uh, sometimes you'll hear the way, a person, the way a person says something, it had a rhythm to it. For instance, I was in uh, upstate New York. I remember Bill Flanagan was there, and he, everybody was out poolside, and they was doing this, that, and the other. And he, and he called a friend of mine, Josh, and said, everybody smile, click, click. So there's my song. Uh, when he, the way he said that, everybody smile, click, click. The way he said that, 
that already started a little something, as you can see. Uh, so you can start simply with that and just say that twice, see how that feels. And uh, when you get started, it helps you out itself. But uh, in that case, it had a rhythm when I first heard the way they said it. Some things you may see something and you just see what happened. For instance, I was in, in San Diego and I was, it was a Sunday and it was quiet and I was walking to the corner and we had to stop and wait for a red light. Well, just a couple of people were there and I stopped and waited for the red light. And there, were, there was a couple who was a few feet behind us and they didn't, they were coming to the corner but they stopped a little short because they had to stop and kiss. And they just stopped and it was just very, one, one person there and them back there and me standing here and they stopped and did one of these sort of Hollywood kisses. And it wasn't brutal, it was just really, really nice. And uh, immediately, I turned around from where I was going and went back to the hotel and wrote that song, San Diego. There's so much love in San Diego. And as I looked around the streets, I saw everything else where I was and I noticed how green the greenery was and how fresh the air felt and all that, and I hadn't paid attention to that until I saw that kiss. So I just couldn't go where I was going. I had to go back and get to that. And uh, I went back and that, at that one, I wrote the whole song then, because sometimes I'll write a part of a song and revisit it and throw it in the garbage the next day, but that was the case. And I had heard about this guy with the popcorn person uh, Fahrbacher or someone like that. Who's the man with the popcorn? Oh, Rickenbacker. Rickenbacker, that guy. Well, there's a bridge there that has something to do with him and, uh, and his family. So that magic bridge is in my, because I heard that story sit in that car. Hmm. That magic bridge, uh, of course, added to the beauty of green and this all sparked from that kiss. So that's what I mean from inspiration. And I, I, I visualize a traveler uh, stopping and laying under that bridge and watching all the boats go by, how pretty things was in green, and uh, everything that went with the song. That, that's a way. How do you go about finding a great song? Hmm? How did you go about Keep looking. Keep looking. Keep looking. We went through 800 songs for Thriller. 800 to get nine, okay? And then after you get to nine, some great stuff after that, you know. Uh, I always use one little device that's never failed me. And then I sit down and be very honest and say, in the company of these nine songs, what are the four weakest? And take those out and put in four that are stronger than anything else in the album. So that was Alan Toussaint and Quincy Jones talking about just how their process works. And I just want to comment on how beautifully said Alan Toussaint, um, just the way he's talking about how he writes and his inspirations. You can tell he's just a poet. Just in his conversation with Dan, it's all very well spoken. Absolutely. And I would love to uh, 
pause and give a little shout out to Madeline Crouch, who is uh, among the uh, nine people out there who have uh, received the NAM Oral History Service Award for helping us land some amazing interviews. Madeline is the one who put me together with Alan, so forever I will tip my hat to her. Uh, fantastic opportunity, as you can tell. And I was just mesmerized. I'm mesmerized again listening to it. Just a, a poetic, as you say, Michelle, um, warm person, just really you know, endearing and somebody you just wanna hang out with. What were your thoughts, Wolf? Well, I love the overall topic of what inspiration is and how he expressed, and of course, the, the beautiful way in which the words were said, but also the idea that it's always a balance between inspiration and craft, mm. and that's the Quincy thing. That's pure craftsmanship. Get your strongest songs, eliminate the weaker ones, then put four more really strong songs in. So that's the ultimate in assembly process, which is important to the production of a good record. But uh, with Alan, it was a beautiful sort of generic feeling of how he looked at, at writing. And it really comes down to experience. And he would talk about how those experiences shaped his songs. It made me think of Paul McCartney writing yesterday, hmm. where he woke up, he didn't know what that melody was, he asked all his friends, he had no title for it, he ended up calling it Scrambled Eggs instead of yesterday, Scrambled Eggs. <laughs> Baby, how I love your legs. Apparently that's what he wrote. And he had no idea, he just had the melody and kept asking everybody, it just came out of his experience, subliminally. Hmm. Just woke up hearing it. So that's inspiration. Incredible. Mike, thoughts listening to those? Yeah, I mean, like everyone said, listening to Alan is just amazing. And the way he talks and the way he explains things, it's like, he explains it in the way that I feel like no one else does and it makes sense when he says it it's almost like wow I think I could do that I think I could start looking yeah. at ordinary things and take them apart and think about my words a little bit more um, obviously he's not talking about the fact that he's a songwriting genius but um, <laughs> he really just kind of humanizes it a little bit which I appreciate mm -hmm. well said absolutely yeah. That's great. So we're going to go on to our next segment. So I really enjoyed this part because it was blues artists meeting blues artists that they're really excited to meet. We mm. all get starstruck, um, but it's fun to hear some of the stars and who kind of they were really excited to play with. So we're going to hear from Quincy Jones about meeting Count Basie and Ray Charles. Robert Cray meeting Muddy Waters, and Arthur Lee Williams talking about Sonny Boy Williams. I wrote a thing called From the Four Winds uh, uh, when I was 14 or something. It was big, sweet, and everything else. And somebody showed it to Lionel Hampton, and, and Basie too. Basie adopted me when I was 13, you know. So anything, one thing led to another. And wait, 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 you were already playing music so well at age 13 that Count Basie took note of you? Oh, yeah. We were playing five clubs a night with Ray Charles, because I met Ray Charles, I was 14, and Ray was 17, and we played uh, pop music with white cardigans and bow ties uh, till seven, till about 10, and we played at Washington Educational Social Club, which is a bottle club, strip teasers and rhythm and blues all that night, played everything, man, shotishes, Polkas, uh, Big Fat Butterfly. You had to know Big Fat Butterfly because we used to play for the kitty. You know the kitty? That's to have this on a pole and a stand and have a big wooden face of a cat 
and that that's what people used to pay for requests you know that's that's how that's how we got paid was from the kitty being that we're here in Sacramento I had a great opportunity here when Muddy Waters was around and uh, we had just we get we got here to the Sacramento Blues Festival and we played we had just played five shows already with Muddy on this little short tour of six shows and the sixth one was here at the Sacramento Blues Festival and my good fortune had it that one of his guitar players had to go back to Chicago and Muddy asked me, he says, Robert, do you think you can play some of that Muddy Water style blues? And I said, I'll give it my best shot. So I, I played the whole set with Muddy. Because the previous uh, gigs, we were, he just asked me to sing the encore, which was Managed Boy, you know, which is fantastic too. But, uh, you know, I got to sit backstage with him every night, and I was like the reporter asking him, you know, how it was to play with little Walter and Otis Spann and all that, you know, and I was like, it was great. It was fantastic. Sonny Boy Williams, Elmo James, I played with him. I played with it. I played with, with Sonny Boy in Helen, Arkansas. No kidding. What was that like? Oh man, it, 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 oh, the King Biscuit time. King Biscuit Flower and Sonny Boy Mill. Yes, sir. Uh, they had Sonny Boy sitting on the, on a the corn cob, <laughs> sitting on the, on a big old corn co uh, corn cob with the with the corn ear, sitting on the on the, on the grains. And I had a picture with him and with the harmonica in his in his hand. And uh, on down the line, I was in Detroit, Michigan, and he uh, he was doing. I was playing in a place called the White House Lounge. And I noticed my crowd was slack that night. So on, on, the, on my intermission, on my break, I walked down there and there he was. When I walked in, he said, God damn, look at that. That's my boy. I'm so crazy about his mama. He never met my mother in his life, but he put me in the dancing like that. I swear he did. He said, I'm crazy about his mama. He said, come on up here, boy. He said, I want you to blow it while I sing it. And I, I did some of that. <laughs> Please, darling, do me a favor. Keep our business to yourself. Please, darling, do me a favor. Keep our business to yourself. Don't you tell nobody. Don't mention nobody else. You have me, husband. I got a wife. If you start some talking, it's going to mess up our life. Please, darling. Keep our business to yourself. If you don't tell nobody, don't tell nobody else. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur Lee Williams. Oh, yeah. Fantastic stuff. <laughs> what a great guy. <laughs> and all of this talk about um, meeting your blues heroes, I got to ask Wolf. I'm sure it's a long list, but uh, who first comes to mind? Well, it would be one of the subjects that we're dealing with today, and that would be B.B. King. Mm. As a 16, 15-year-old kid, I would be putting my headphones on, listening to B.B. King albums I bought at Thrifty Drugstore in the cutout bin. Uh, and I'd listen to those things like they were textbooks. 
And when I finally got a chance to play with him, I'd already met him a couple times before that and spent time with him. But uh, to actually play with him hmm. was fantastic and to interact with him. Uh, was an amazing thing. So it's just like hits a certain point where you do meet your heroes. Yeah, no doubt about it. Mike, who comes to mind for you? I, I've always said that my favorite drummer of all time is John Bonham. So I'll unfortunately never get to meet him or play alongside him. Um, but I have seen his son play in person and mm. it's close, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely John Bonham and Keith Moon was up there and Mitch Mitchell and all those guys. Not not crazy blues. I mean, it's it's it it's related to the blues, but it's not 100. percent right. No, that's it's no. close. <laughs> they were influenced. For what about sure. you, Dan? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a very long list. <laughs> well, I remember the first time I met BB. Um, it was at the Richmond Auditorium in Richmond, California, which is just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And there was a concert that Lionel Hampton was doing, and I had a radio show, and I got to go backstage and that sort of thing. But um, BB and I were in the bathroom in the men's room together at the same time <laughs> and, during intermission and uh, we were um, standing next to each other and I just happened to notice there's a large gentleman next to me and I, I kind of looked up and I saw on the um, on his collar he had a BB in gold um, a pin on the collar of his shirt and that's all I noticed and I thought oh my goodness so <laughs> I went to wash my hands and I remember washing them for a very long time before he came over uh -huh. and I, I waited for him to wash his hands and uh, you know, met him shook his hand and and um, years later my I was telling the story to my young kids and my daughter Ella said so you pee peed next to BB, and so <laughs> it's sort of a, a family, a family <laughs> folklore song now. Uh, but a fantastic guy. And of course, I got to meet him for the interview. I think I saw him 19 times in concert. If you count the street scenes in San Diego, where there were a multitude of people, but I did listen to him there. I think I saw him 19 times. So definitely, probably the the greatest blues guy I'll I'll uh, I'll ever meet, as far as that goes. So, um, so for sure, BB's on the list. That was just such a great Dan story. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh yeah, I met him in the bathroom. <laughs> You'll have to see see me on the BB PP. <laughs> okay, Michelle, I know you're kind of new to the game, but anybody come to mind? E, that's that's really hard. I will say it's been really nice just being able to go through and listen to all these artists, and mm. not just listen to them, but watch them and their style. Um, because I am new to the game, I have not had the honor of meeting a whole lot of people, but watching the pure joy of what they do and just their love for music is just an amazing experience. And you really find that with almost every blues musician I've, I've even seen, um, whether it's YouTube or any other method. Well said, yeah, absolutely. You know, a, a factor of the blues as well as jazz, something I'm near and dear to my heart, um, is just this whole concept of moving the ball forward, you know, this mentoring and, and passing the torch. Um, and the, the next segment that we're going to hear kind of talks about all that. And I'd love to get Wolf's thoughts about that, too. I mean, it really is a quintessential part of being a musician, I think. Oh, yeah. It's a responsibility, but it's also a joy. Because when you teach somebody that's really got a passion 
you feel the growth in them from week to week. Hmm. Like my students at UCLA are just into it. They're just super motivated. They want to have careers in music. They're not necessarily saying it's going to be a jazz career, but they understand that jazz is a very important part of their training. So they, if they become pop artists, they go into hip hop, whatever it is, they're going to bring that inspiration with them. And uh, so it's so important to the next generation. I, I believe that you have to, uh, if you're a player who is um, endowed with the ability to transfer that information, it's a responsibility you have to take pretty seriously to mentor certain students, as many as you can, you know, within reason. But, you know, I was mentored so luckily by uh, Pat Martino hmm. and uh, uh, Johnny Smith and a lot of great players who uh, helped me in my career and Kenny Burrell. So all these people were just very important. So I take that responsibility. I'm part of a conduit. Absolutely. So Mike, what are we going to hear in this last segment? This last segment is, like you said, Dan, all about um, why music is important and why it's important to pass it on to the younger generation. We're going to hear from B.B. Ken, Alan Toussaint, and Quincy Jones all talking about that subject. I think, though, being interested in the music as I was, that was one of the good things for me, and I think it's a lot. It has a lot to do with a lot of the kids today that keeps them from, you know, when, when kids have nothing to do that interests them, then they may do many things. And I never got in trouble. I was never in trouble other than getting thrown out of the house <laughs> for playing so loud. But that was on my mind. I would say to the students today, though, as you asked me a while ago, schooling is very important. All of my life now, I didn't finish high school. All of my life, I wished I had to finish high school and go to college. And I say to all the kids, you're never too old. I got a computer that tutors me now, but that's the one thing I regret. I regret that more than anything because I think that today is the day of, shall we say, technology, and you need to know something about what's going on around you. A diabetic like I am, I've got a little machine that I can check my blood sugar and don't have to probe in my fingers like we used to have to. So in so many words, I'm trying to say there are so many things that young people are doing today. And a lot of them are musicians, a lot of them are playing and having fun maybe on the weekends. But I say to them, whether they have fun on the weekends or any other time, play your music. Nothing wrong with it, play it. Uh, it's a good feeling to know that you can play. I have an old saying that I've kept in my mind for a long, long time. It is much better to know and not need than to need and not know. So go ahead and play it. So what have your thoughts been in terms of inspiring young children who come up to you and say they want to be a musician? What have been some of your thoughts about that? Well, it doesn't happen to me often, uh, but I know what that means. If it, if one, if such would happen, if they had, if I thought they really had an ear to hear what I was about to say, I would say to surround yourself with good people. 
and listen to everything you can, no matter if it's if you think it's your bag or not. Just listen, because listening is free. Uh, you're going to be alive in the next five minutes. You can have this to you now. Add this to you. Five minutes worth of this. Uh, because even in whatever you're doing, a little piece of that may slip right in when you need it where it never would have met before. For some reason, since you collected that that day, those five minutes, here is where that little key fit. Uh, you could have not had that, and this was going on and be mediocre forever, because it needed that which you got from somewhere else. So surround yourself with good people, and as far as learning, if you're, going, if you're a reader, if somebody's in your field and they're writing articles, read articles that successful people write in that and not unsuccessful people thinking, I could learn from how to lose so not to. I don't think you should give losing any practice or learn more about how it goes. There's no need in trying to keep learning something unless you want to use it. Uh, there's enough uh, learning how to win that you won't have to try to learn how to about losing, about not to lose. That's, that's playing defense with life. You have to be offensive. Yeah. Well said, yeah. Yeah, well, and I, I think if you can, as much good stuff and people as you can surround yourself with, mm. and uh, love, love strongly and few. can't love a whole lot of folk. It would be nice. In the, uh, in the general biblical time, you can love, but uh, love one or few. So that would beg to uh, be the opposite of parents who tell their kids, oh, that's great, you're talented at music, but you need to get something else to fall back on in case you... Get a real job. Right? Get a real job. But you said that if you're walking into the studio trying to figure out how to sell or do anything else, what you need to, what, when you're trying to sell shoes or sell vodka, what you need to do is put all that aside. Be honest to your main goal. You know, and, and give it everything that you need to give it. And that means studying your, your craft. You know, I hear all this BS today about, yeah, I used to read music, and I've asked dudes that, I, I used to read music, but I forgot how, but I, I can read, but not enough to mess with, hurt my swinging and all that kind of nonsense. It's nonsense, man. It is, you know, knowing what you're doing is wonderful, with knowing what you're doing. And I, I, in the beginning, I'd do it whether I got paid or not. I mean, my first movie of the Pondrock, I got $8,000, man. You know? They paid the orchestra, though. Hmm? They paid the orchestra, oh, yeah. though. They, okay. had they had to. I couldn't afford them. <laughs> $8,000? No. And I tried to do the whole thing in two days. I thought it was like a record deal, you know. No, it's, it's, no, it's not the way it works. And, you know, as you go, you, you if you don't make any mistakes, you don't learn anything. I've got to be lucky enough to make a lot of mistakes, man. It's true. 
Okay, that was Quincy Jones wrapping up our final segment of our podcast today on the blues. Uh, final thoughts. Let's go around, Mike. Yeah, um, it's just the blues. It's a great genre. I'm really glad that Dan, you're able to capture all of these interviews with, I mean, some of the most iconic blues players. And Michelle, great job with this outline. I mean, it really painted the picture of how these guys got into music, how they were inspired. The, the writing process and why it needs to be uh, passed down to future generations. So I had a lot of fun today. Yeah, Thanks, me guys. too. I absolutely that agree. Great. great outline. What a joy it is to hang out with my man, Wolf. Thank you so thank much you. for being here. Appreciate great it. To your, be here. your final thoughts? Well, I have to play off of what uh, Quincy just said, and that is to have that total commitment mm. because I think without it, you don't have the imagination to see what you can do. You've always got a little part of your life that's in another camp, and it may be that part that holds you back. So I remember burning my bridges, like he said. The only job I've had not in music was uh, working in a laundromat for two weeks to buy an amp. <laughs> Other than that, I've been in music, but in so many different things, education, performance, production, uh, video work, uh, tutoring, uh, all anyway, and anything that's musical, I did. Hmm. Film scores, all that stuff. So I completely concur with Quincy. Fantastic. Michelle? Just really excited that this was the second podcast that I, I got to do. Um, I'm a huge blues fan. I'm not very good with names, as you know, but just the music itself, it's very rare that you hear songs that make you really feel something. And in the blues genre, I feel like every song makes you feel something. So happy, happy that this came about. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you all for listening. It's been a pleasure. And we'll uh, do another one, huh? Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> all right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.